Well, if you have your Bible, open to the Gospel of Mark. If you didn't bring one with you, if you don't own one, then there's that black hardback we want you to take out. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that home with you as a gift from us to you. But in doing so, you're promising to read it. So please, please take that home, read it. And uh, we're going to be in Mark 14. This is continuing our series through Mark. Again, kind of the game plan that we have is to end Mark the week after Easter. Um, so Lord willing, that's, that's the schedule that we're on and we will move toward. And uh, so we're here in Mark chapter 14, 12 through 26. This is continuing what uh, Jeremy had covered last week in kind of the, the uh, first part of chapter 14. And I didn't know what to title this morning's sermon, so I got real creative and said the first supper. Now you're probably thinking, isn't it the last supper? Well, I'll explain at the end um, of why it's the first. And uh, so just bear with me this whole time. And maybe you'll get to the end and be like, yeah, you should have titled it something else. And so you can, you can keep your criticisms to yourself or put them on the connection card and put them in the box. And then I'll throw them away. So um, just go ahead and do that. That's fine. Uh, but, okay, so here in Mark 14, <clears throat> we're, we're in the same week that Jesus is last week um, be, before he, he dies, he's resurrected, uh, before he ascends back into heaven. And so here, this is continuing that whole idea, that final week. Uh, with his disciples. Now, there are some that would say that Jesus is this, this tragic hero, that he was caught in the trap of the government uh, at the time, that he uh, was just caught up in what was happening with the Romans and the Jews at the time. They believe that it's an incident that was beyond his control, beyond his plans, beyond his powers, in their view. Um, is that all of what transpired with his arrest, with his trial, with his execution, that all of these things, they were just unfortunate ends to a hero that fought for justice and fought for peace. And he was finding himself helpless in the hands of the Sanhedrin and in the hands of the Romans. And it's a tragic end to such a a great teacher, an individual. Tell us about Jesus. We know from these gospel accounts that Jesus was never desperate He never acted fearfully, or was he caught off guard by the things that were happening or going to happen? We never find Jesus cowering in fear of what might happen to him or unaware of the plans in which people had against him. He is aware constantly of these things. Now, what we find consistently out of the Gospels, not just Mark, but the other three accounts of Jesus' life and death, is that the cross is the plan. The cross has always been the plan. There was no other plan or purpose that Jesus had that was not fulfilled in what happened to him. All of what he intended to do was completed, was accomplished in the cross and in his resurrection. So we find that the situation, it was never out of his control. The events that transpired, they were never something that was was, uh, just randomly or accidentally taking place and happening to Jesus. Jesus was always in sovereign control of what was happening to him, and also by his sovereign grace, he will control even the evil of human beings to accomplish his saving purposes. Now, every aspect of what is going to transpire through chapter 14 into chapter 15, through chapter 15 of Mark, will happen exactly the way it should have happened and will not wander off the course in which God has established So, for us, as we hear this very familiar story once again, and as we come to this point where all of the gospel is kind of moving to this point, 
let us not just think on these things in, in just a vain, repetitious way, writing this off as, oh, just another sermon about Jesus and his death. But really, with these truths, let us rely upon the fact and be encouraged by the fact that God is in control. He's always been. Now, what proof do we have of these claims? Well, there's several. And this morning, we're going to see, I think, just a couple here out of the passage that we're going to look at. What we're going to find from, verses 20, from verse 12 into verses 26 is evidence of the providential plan of God playing out as he has promised it would. And again, we see that Jesus is not out of control in any way. That he is, again, who he has always been, that is, the sovereign Lord. So there's three sections in your Bible. Likely, it's how it's split out. It depends on your translation that you're looking at. But likely, it is broke out into kind of three sections. So we're going to look at this passage today in these three sections. The first being the preparations for the Passover meal. The second, we'll, we'll look at the prediction of the betrayal of Jesus. And the last will be the first, the first supper. So we're going to look at these in this this pattern. So let's look at the first thing. It's in verses 12 through 16. Let's read that, and we'll kind of walk through those verses. Mark 14, 12. <clears throat> and on the first day of the have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready there prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now Jesus and his disciples, they had been moving back and forth between Jerusalem, the, the city of David there, and Bethany. So they've been staying in Bethany, and again, this whole event uh, is around the Passover. This, is this, this whole week is focused on the Passover, so there's this huge influx of people into Jerusalem, and so uh, there was kind of no room in the inn, so to speak, in Jerusalem, and so people are pushed to the, the outer parts and the outer cities, towns, villages, uh, where they would have to stay. And so Jesus had friends in Bethany that we know of, and so this is where they were staying. They're moving back and forth this whole week. And coming into the city, out of the city, back and forth. This is what we've seen through Mark so far. And again, this is all for the annual Passover meal, the Passover feast. Now, as you probably know, the Passover, <clears throat> it was celebrated once a year to commemorate what? The passing over, hence the name, of what? Well, passing over of the Lord in Exodus 12. Passing over for what purpose? Well, it's the story of the people of Israel in Egypt and where God, he, he is um, trying to, he's going to free his people, and he promises to do it through ten plagues. And the last final plague is what? Is to the execution, the slaughter of the firstborn. And for you to avoid that wrath of God, what had to be applied? It was the blood of a spotless lamb on your doorpost. And so what would happen is that God promised this is what's going to take place. There was preparations made. There was a lamb that was brought into the house. People of Israel were brought into the house. And really, even if you were an Egyptian, if you spread the blood over your doorpost, you would be saved from the wrath. And those that did not, they were not spared this. Now, this, this affected not just all households in Egypt, but also even the cattle of Egypt who were affected by this, uh, this act of God. Now, this was a tipping point for Pharaoh and the people of Egypt to let the people of Israel go. And he said, get out of here. I'm tired of you people, tired of your God. 
And you know the rest of the story. But all of the Passover meal, it was for this purpose of remembering what God had done, what God had prepared, what God had brought about to free his people out of the clutches of the Egyptians. This was all a working of God. And so we're, they were to remember his faithfulness, remember that they were part of God's covenant people. And Jesus is going to take this meal to a completely different level of meaning that they had never, never even thought of to be a possibility, new significance to it. Now, on March 27th, as I've already said, we're going to have a Seder meal, which is, again, a remembrance of what God has accomplished for us as our Savior from sin. And so, again, we'll have more information on the 14th, so sign up. Go out there in the Welcome Center after service. Sign up and be a part of that. Now, there's a few interesting things that happen <clears throat> with this series of events, and the first is in verse 12. And again, as you read the Bible, don't just skip over verses that seem to be just transitionary. There's, there's things inside of each of these verses that we should consider. And one of the things is the disciples. And they are asking Jesus where to prepare the meal, right? Where to prepare the meal. So it's kind of like this, that the disciples are asking, where does Jesus want to eat? Now, it's not the same conversation that you have with your friend or with your spouse about where to eat, which usually goes poorly, right? At least it does for me sometimes, where you ask, well, hey, where do you want to eat? I don't care. It's like, well, that's not even a restaurant. I don't care. If you want to make some money, open a restaurant called I Don't Care or whatever, right? You will have a flock of people there, right? Because instantly you just put it into your phone, boom, you're there, right? So, but usually the conversation goes, where do you want to eat? I don't care. Well, how about this place? I don't feel like that. What do you mean you don't feel like that? You said you didn't care. And then you ask again, well, how about this place? No, I just had that, or I'm nah, not really feeling that. And so you go through this again and again, how about this, how about that? No, they don't have this, I don't want that, I don't feel, right? And then you just get frustrated, and then you just end up going home. Um, so maybe you've had that scenario, I've had a few times. Um, but here, there's no debate about what to eat. It is simply where to eat, because the meal has already been planned. The Passover meal and what's, what the contents are of the meal, it's already there. Uh, this is something that's, again, a traditional thing that they've been doing in the same way for hundreds of years to remember what God has done. So this meal, it was the whole reason why they were there. At least they thought this was the reason why they were there. Of course, they will learn within this next week that the, the reason for being in Jerusalem is not at all for this supper. Now, it seems as though these disciples were really unaware of the plans that had been made. It seems to be very lost on them that there was anything uh, prepared. Some have said that Jesus had made preparations ahead of time and that he had prepared um, these arrangements before he ever came back into Jerusalem, which I, I think a lot of that is an attempt to strip away the divine nature of Jesus and emphasize the human nature of Jesus. But if we examine, that, I think, the passage closely, we'll see that I don't think this is the case, that he just made some plans ahead of time. In verse 12, we see that the disciples, they were not aware of any plans which were being made. I think this is highly unlikely because of verse 13, it tells us he sent two of his disciples. Now, Mark doesn't identify who they are, but in Luke's gospel, he tells us who they are. It's Peter and John. Peter and John are part of, wouldn't it be these two? Now, again, that's kind of speculation of what that might mean. But Jesus begins to tell them um, what to do. And so in verse 13, he says, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Jesus tells them who to look for and then who to follow. Look for a man, 
carrying a water jar. Now, there, there's some significance of that because in this time period, only mostly women would be carrying water jars or slaves. So if you came to the city, you would probably find a whole lot of women carrying water in jars, but also you would find some men who are slaves carrying these water jars. So the question, several questions, how would they know who it is? How would they identify him? Do they have like a special like mark on the water jar, like different t-shirt he was wearing, like I love Jesus t-shirt? Like what, what was it that was indicating that this is the guy? We don't know. But Jesus tells him who to look for. He doesn't give a lot of description. And then he tells him to follow him. And from what we have here in Mark, it seems like Jesus told them to simply follow this guy. You're not going to really get a lot of information. You're just going to be following him to his master. Now, some think that this was all a prearranged signal that Jesus had set up, but again, how is that? We don't have any, any uh, indications of that. Jesus possibly, probably had friends in the city. That's a very likely possibility, but I think a great question would be to ask, how could he expect the disciples to arrive at the city at the right time, in the right place, seeing the right guy with the jar? Hmm, good question. Why would Jesus not just simply tell them which house to go to if he had already prearranged some plans? Good question. So I think it's likely that Mark's intent, and this is really the hard part of interpreting the Bible, is the author's intent. What is his intent of writing this way? I think his intention is to suggest the supernatural knowledge of Jesus in this moment. I think this is all of what we have out of chapter 14 and even before chapter 14. And so in in verse 14, Jesus told them not only who to look for and who to follow, but also what to say. So find the guy, follow the guy, say to the guy. And what do they say? Well, the teacher says. Now, this probably should be a capital T in your Bible because it's a title. It's a title that's used for Jesus, not just by his disciples. It's used by even the people that hated Jesus, the the Pharisees, the scribes. They refer to him as the teacher or your teacher, usually in a very condescending kind of way. And this title is very true of who Jesus is and who he was, but he is more than just a teacher. Jesus was and is the teacher and always will be the teacher, and we will see in the next section how that, is, how that kind of plays out in 17 through 21. But in verse 15, I look at verse 15 again, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Their, their homes were not constructed like ours, and again, if you've seen any pictures of modern day Jerusalem, it's uh, again very different than, than ours. But in this time period, these, these houses uh, were very different how they were organized. There was usually one room or four rooms on the base level, and then sometimes there'd be an upper level, upper room that was built, and it'd be a very large room. Now, in those cases, those houses were usually belonging to wealthy people or people that used them in a semi-public kind of format. Um, Not like, uh, maybe like an Airbnb kind of situation. Maybe not, I don't know. Uh, And so, now if you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to a place that's called the upper room. Probably not the upper room. It's been traditionally deemed that. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Those, a lot of that wasn't rebuilt until 135 AD. And so the upper room that you would go to today, it's a traditional site that was rebuilt by the Crusaders. So we're about 1,000 years removed from the death of Christ when it was rebuilt. So we have no idea if that's the actual location, but you might get a pretty good sense of the size of what the room could be. Now, it wouldn't look at all like what the Crusaders built it, but uh, that's... 
Um, that's what we have that you can go and see today. Now, in verse 16, this last verse of this section, we see what? The disciples set out, Peter and John, they set out, they went to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. What do they find when they go to the city? Everything exactly the way that Jesus had said. I think this is where we find the intention of the author saying, this this Jesus that we're referring to, he is one that has, has a knowledge that's beyond human capacities. I think this is one of the indications for us. So we have this preparation of the meal happening. Then we have a transition that happens in verses 17 through 21. We have the prediction of the betrayal that takes place during the meal. Look at verses 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of God is betrayed. Uh, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, we have a scene change that happens where Peter and John had secured the building, prepared the building, uh, got the meal prepared, and then it's become evening. The twelve come with Jesus to partake of this meal together. And in verse 18, it tells us that they were reclining at the table. Now, when reclining happens at my table, I'm not happy about that. Uh, I usually have to discipline down on the chair. And I don't want to eat my vegetable. Um, that's not what happens. But my children, whenever they act that way, there's usually some discipline, some correction that's happened. Now, here in this culture, it's very different. Very different kind of scenario because everybody would recline at tables. Now, let me give you a few details to help you kind of understand what, what would this look like, what would this be like, and... Uh, where certain individuals are located at this table. Now, you are probably very familiar with Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper painting, right? If not, you are now. Um, and da Vinci painted this picture many years after Jesus, and this is not at all an accurate depiction of what the Last Supper table would look like. Uh, they would not be sitting in chairs. They would not have a table that high. Um, this is not really accurate in what the table would look like. The table that Jesus and his disciples would be reclining at would look more like this one. And this is called a triclinium, which is a table that was designed by the Romans and designed um, for a purpose, really, of, of sharing a meal together, of hosting and entertaining a meal. And this is why we have the horseshoe shape. Now, most of the people in first century Israel had adopted this kind of format, this kind of design for an upper room, such as the one that Jesus would be in. And what they would do, they would, you kind of see an overview of this, an uh, over-the-top view, but they would lay out uh, carpets, they would lay out um, blankets, pillows, and so there would be a reclining on the left hand, uh, and you know why, right? No? Okay, ask your neighbor. And then the, you would use your right hand to eat. So if, you really, if your neighbor doesn't know, you can talk to me afterward and I'll explain. Um, but this is what they, how they would lay. So... This is kind of the format of the meal, but then also what we have from piecing other accounts of this story together about the supper, we learn about the seating arrangement, and this is really, I think, important to the story. In this culture, the person who was hosting the meal would be seated next to the person of honor. Now, who is the person of honor? 
Jesus is the person of honor. So John and Peter were the ones that went to prepare the place to make the setup for the meal. And so John has the seat of honor next to Jesus. And then to Jesus' left, we know it's Judas. And then around the table to the other side where Peter lands. Now, in this culture, the last person at the table where Peter is sitting is the person of least importance. Interesting that Peter is placed there. Now, I don't think there's any coincidence that the seating arrangement was this. Um, this is not an accident to where each of these disciples landed when they're eating this meal. And we won't discuss Peter's location because it's not highlighted in Mark, and that's probably likely because Mark's gospel is thought to be a dictation from Peter. So he probably didn't want to incriminate himself as to why he is last. But in that location where Peter is, it would be a place where a servant would be placed or, or one that would be doing a lot of the serving of the meal if they had to go out and get something and come back. That's important. Peter was placed in this spot. But Judas has a location that is very important. It's a location that seems to be a place of honor as well, as John has been seated right next to Jesus. Judas had a position of secondary honor, seated next to the highest of honor, Jesus. Judas could not be any closer to Jesus, could he? He had a position, really, that from a cultural perspective that Peter should have had, but Jesus rarely operated upon cultural norms. And so here, Jesus, he's always being the teacher, he's always teaching, he, he does it in such subtle ways and maybe blunt ways or maybe even harsh ways sometimes. And he's teaching, and he's teaching something here, even, I think, in this example of where these people are seated. And what are the lessons that we need to learn? Well, I think there's a lot of lessons that we could probably draw out of this, a lot of applications that we can draw out of this. Let me just give you three that I've thought through this week, and maybe that will be helpful for you. Number one, don't assume someone is a follower just because they follow. Number two, don't assume that you are safe because you have been shown grace. Number three, your plans are not the Lord's plans. So let's talk about the first one. Don't assume that someone is a follower just because they follow. Now, Jeremy talked about this idea last week in verses 10 and 11, where he talked about Judas, and Judas actively went out and, and betrayed Jesus, was selling Jesus out, and so just because someone is a super consistent individual, super committed to the things of the church, it seems like their faith is just growing and abounding, it doesn't prove that the intentions of their heart are pure and that they really are a follower of Jesus Christ. Judas is our prime example of this. Now we, we see Jesus tell them that there's going to be one that's going to betray him. And they all start doing what? It says they become sorrowful in verse 19, and then they ask a question, is it I? Notice that nobody instantly went, mm, Judas, right? Nobody did that. Honestly, I think if anybody was to be accused, it's probably Thomas, right? Like, that guy's doubting everything Jesus does, right? Like, he, you, can't be, you can't trust that guy. He doubts everything. But they don't do that. Their question is reflective upon their self. It's inward. Is it, is it me? Which I think is what we should do whenever we hear the word of God. We should ask this question. Am I the one who am in offense to God or in offense to others? Is it I? Have I done this? 
Instead of going, nah, who's the best candidate for the betrayer? And the reality is, through this whole storyline that we'll see to the end of Mark, is that all of you in a different way, but Judas very specifically and very clearly. But asking this question, I think, without being truly honest with yourself, is simply self-deception. We know from John's gospel that Judas asked the same question, but we already know what's in Judas' heart. This was self-deception, but I think also, at the same time, if we're not going to be honest with others, when we ask this question, you know, we're honestly asking, well, did I offend you? Did I hurt you in some way? Sometimes we're being not just self-deceptive, but I think deceptive on purpose so that we'd be seen in a better light with them, and we're not humble because of our pride and our selfishness. I think this is all what's happening with Judas. I think he is self-deceived, and he's purposely deceiving. So don't assume someone's a follower just because they follow. A second, I think, lesson here is don't assume that you are safe because you have been shown grace. Judas, I think, had the, be- the best, uh, second best seat in the house, right? He's sitting right next to Jesus. John's on the right. Judas is on the left. Jesus sat Judas there as an act of grace. He allowed Judas to be part of the group as an act of grace, He even gave Judas power at one point to cast out demons as an act of grace. There's so many acts of grace that's been shown to Judas, but what does he do? He rejects all of it, and he pursues the evil that was in his heart. People do this all the time, believing that they are okay with God because, well, nothing bad's happening. There's no consequence to my sin. There's nothing wrong that's, that's come out of the choices that I've made. God must be okay with what I'm doing. As, as Dan said this morning, people think that they're right in their own mind. They think this because, well, they're seeing the blessings from God. Maybe it's financial blessings. Maybe it's relational or, or influential blessings from God. And so he's not punishing me in any way, so I must be okay with him. He must be okay with my lifestyle and the choices that I make and how I, how I live my life, the intentions of my heart. He must be okay because I have these blessings. Now, the reality that we all need to understand is that physical blessings do not equate to a right and secured relationship with the Lord. It doesn't work that way. The prosperity gospel says the opposite of that and says that the physical blessings of this life is evidence of God's approval. Well, that is not the case with Judas. Judas was given the money bag. He was given the place of honor. He was given all these things, but these blessings, I think, end up being a curse to him. And the same can be true of you in your life. Don't assume that you're okay with God just because nothing bad's happening. Just because God's been showing the third thing. Third lesson, I think at this point, with Jesus and Jesus' his intentions, it's his plan and the Father's plan. Why? Because Jesus didn't do anything that wasn't the Father's plan. Everything that he did was because of what the Father had told him to do. So this is, this is something that we, we find in Scripture, we find really clearly in the Gospels, but we also see clearly that this would not be the disciples' plan. If they were leading, this is not where they would be. They would not be in Jerusalem. Before Jesus decides to take them back into Jerusalem, they have this little conversation about going back to Jerusalem, and the consensus was, we're all going to die if we go there. They don't want to be here. 
But Jesus intended to move this way, to come here, to do this. If they had their way, they would not be here. And if they would have known what Jesus had known, they probably would have gotten rid of Judas a long time ago. Now, I asked several questions in my study throughout this week, and one of these questions was this. Why did Jesus not name Judas specifically? Does, does he not know who it is? Is he just like, I don't know. The Father told me one of you is going to. Or does he actually know? And if he knows, why does he not just say who it is? So I thought about some, some reasons as to maybe why. And these are just maybes and speculations, okay? But maybe because Peter would have just killed him. Now, that's my first thought. Because we know later, Peter has it in him, right? Like just in a couple hours, what's Peter going to do? Try to kill somebody. He's just not very good at aiming. And so Peter has it in him. Maybe that's why he didn't say anything. Or maybe it's because Jesus is so compassionate. He's so kind. He's so merciful, which is true. He is. Jesus is those things, which I think is a, a partial answer, but I don't think a fuller answer to why. I think a fuller explanation as to why Jesus didn't name him directly is if he did, then Judas wouldn't have had an opportunity to finish his work. Jesus says in verse 21, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And and that phrase right there, that is an indication of this is a prophesied thing. It cannot be undone. It cannot be changed. And then he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This is an indication that this betrayal was predicted that it would happen. It was promised that it would happen. So if Judas was prevented from committing this act of betrayal, then God's word would have failed. God's promise would have not succeeded. God would be made a liar. But Jesus actually did point out who it was, just not by name. The problem is nobody paid any attention to what Jesus says. In John's gospel, we have more detail in the And so John gives us some other intimate details, and we see in that gospel that Jesus says that he will give a morsel to the one who will betray him. And it turns out to be Judas. But again, if if this format is true of the supper, who are the only two good options? John and Judas. Nobody realized, nobody paid any attention, nobody really thought about what he was saying, again, their, maybe their self-reflection or panic that was in their heart of asking the question, is it I? They just didn't think of the other possible people in the room. John, Judas, I think these are the, the two best options. And in John's gospel, Jesus gives that morsel that was dipped in the cup, dipped in the bowl to Judas. Now, if Jesus knew that it was Judas all along, then why didn't he stop him from bringing this evil plan to fruition? Could this betrayal have stopped Jesus? Or, sorry, could this betrayal have been stopped by Jesus? Yes, I think so. Could Jesus have saved Judas from doing this terrible act of injustice, of, of turning over an innocent man? Yes. But... He didn't. 
He chose to allow the evil in the heart of Judas to consume him and to overtake him. This is what we see happening with Pharaoh, that his heart was hardened. What Paul also describes in Romans 1, and what happens to humanity, our hearts are hardened against God. We have been given over to our evil desire. We know that after Judas leaves this room, and you see that out out of John's gospel, Whenever he leaves the room, that Satan enters Judas, sealing the deal, so to speak. So another question is, now, Jesus could have prevented that, right? Like, he could have stopped the, the infiltration of Satan into Judas. I mean, he, he has the power to cast out demons, and Satan is the demon, and Satan doesn't have the same kind of abilities or powers that Jesus, the creator of all things, does, so... Yes, he could have prevented, he could have stopped, but he, again, didn't. Why? Because it's all part of the plan of God. Now, this is, I think, a hard thing to believe and a hard thing to understand, but let me, let me give you some scriptures that I think help explain what's happening here with Judas and what Peter would have to say about this. Acts chapter 1, I want you to get your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 15, says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, was allotted his share in this ministry. And if you go down that same chapter in verse 25, He goes on and says, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. So what we have here is that the betrayal of Judas was one that was prophesied and promised by and planned by God. But also at the same time, Judas chose to commit this act of betrayal. In the next chapter, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 At the day of Pentecost, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then if you go to Acts 4, verses 23 through 28. Peter John have been arrested. They are released, and here's where we find this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, meaning the Romans, and the peoples of Israel, including Judas, to do whatever your hand and your 
plan had predestined to take place. I believe what Peter is preaching, what Peter is clarifying, is that God is the one who organized, who orchestrated, who planned, who purposed to send Jesus to the cross. And at the same time, God holds all of these people responsible for the execution of the evil act of Jesus. There was a divine appointment for Jesus to follow. And Peter then later writes in 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that this appointed time was established before the foundations of the world. So Jesus, according to the providential plan of God, Judas was still held morally responsible for his free will actions. Same goes for Herod, for Pontius Pilate, for all the other Romans that were involved, for the people of Israel, and for you, you're responsible. This is the idea of what has been termed compatibilism, meaning that God has predetermined this to happen, but it does not relieve Judas or others, including yourself, from the responsibility and guilt of your sin. This is truly a divine mystery that we probably will never fully comprehend or understand in this life, but there is a tension that is consistent through the Scriptures about the sovereignty of God in all things and the moral responsibility of man, and that we should not neglect or abandon this tension. I believe both of them are true, it is one of several paradoxes in Scripture. A paradox is not a contradiction. It looks as though it is a contradiction, but with further study, we said that it's, it's not. And this is just one of several paradoxes that we have in Scripture. So our plans and our purposes are thankfully not God's. Praise His name. Thankfully, your plans, your ambitions, your purposes are not His. Because again, if the disciples got their plan, their way, you wouldn't be here today in probably more than one way. We wouldn't have salvation if they got their way. If God answered all the prayers of all, all the people all over the world, it would be a mess. So praise God that our thoughts, our ways are not his. That he is beyond us and he thinks differently than us and he is holy and perfect in what he does. The last verse of that section, verse 21, says, But woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, some interpreters would look at this word woe that's included here, and they would say that Jesus is expressing sorrow for Judas's plan and his actions, which is probably not completely wrong. But, again, I think there's more here to that word this word woe, it can be translated in, in different ways depending upon the contextual usage of the word. And here, the way that it is used is not in a sorrowful lament kind of way, but in a condemning judgment kind of way because of the last part of the verse. It would have been better if that man had not been born. So Jesus, yes, is, is merciful and compassionate and kind, but he also has cursed, as we've seen, the temple... Israel. He also has been angry at the injustice of the whole system, and there will be judgment and condemnation because of that. Now, this transitions into the institution of the Lord's Supper, or communion, as we call it sometimes. And this last 
passage, this last practice that we see, is something that's probably very familiar to you if you've been in church or been here for any length of time. We, we participate in this once a month. So next week we will uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. But here, in the context of what's happening, this was just another normal Passover meal to these men. That's what it was. But Jesus reveals something very different. That the freedom of slavery and oppression of Egypt is not going to be the center of attention with this. It's going to be something very, very different now. That's what Jesus does. Taking something that's very ordinary and common and and people have have treated it in this way and turns it to a completely new idea. He's going to show them that this meal, it was always representing something else. It was always foreshadowing something else. And this is why it's the first supper because it's the first supper of the new covenant. It is ending, it's the last supper of the old covenant, but it's the start of something new. This first supper that's been established for those that are in covenant with Jesus Christ. So in verse 22, let's read these 22 through 26. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So verse 22, Jesus says that this bread, which was unleavened bread, represented what? His body. Now, why is that significant? Because leaven in the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures, it is always connected to symbolizing sin. So when Jesus says that this body, which is unleavened, my body is represented in this bread, he is saying, I am sinless. So if you ever get into a conversation with somebody that denies the sinlessness of Jesus, they have missed so many things, and including that one thing there. A clear representation of the body of Christ, the actual physical body of Jesus was sinless, along with his mind, his mouth, his hands, his feet, every bit of him was sinless. And so he's saying, when he says, this is my body, I am sinless. Verse 24, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The blood that was spilled by the spotless lamb back in Egypt was a foreshadowing of who? Jesus Christ takes away the sin of the world. John was not wrong. Jesus is the spotless lamb. We are all in desperate need of this lamb to have his blood applied to our doorposts of our hearts that we would be passed over by the wrath of God. We would be preserved by the wrath of God. From, from the wrath of God. The only way for the wrath of God to be removed from you, from your account, is how? Through the application of the blood of the Lamb. There is no other way. There are no other options. Jesus tells them that this is the first, this first covenant that was there, that you've been remembering and practicing for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's now being completed, and there's a new covenant established. And this covenant that is being made is not in the blood of animals, which could never remove sin from man, but in the blood of God in the flesh. 
This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that your sin can be removed from you because of what he has done. And all of what Jesus does here is, again, a fulfillment of the scriptures. All of what Jesus ever did was a fulfillment of the scriptures. Jeremiah 31 promises the establishment of a new covenant that happens through the death of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is truly... And what's happening in this whole, this whole moment from 23 through 25, this is really a, truly a shocking thing that takes place. Think about what Jesus is doing here. He is getting ready to die. He has said this several times. They have this meal together, which is historically represented the, the Exodus story, the power of God in salvation from the captivity in Israel. And now Jesus is saying, yes, all of that is true, but Also, what this represents is me and what I'm going to do, what I'm going to accomplish. And so what I want you to do is to honor me from now on, to remember me and not these other things, but me specifically. Now, think about how arrogant that sounds. If you went to dinner at somebody's house tonight, and as you're eating dinner, they get up and they say, this bread represents my body, this Dr. Pepper represents my blood. I don't know, whatever. They might have wine. Uh, and you're like, what is going on, right? Like, this, this is not the storyline that I want to fall into. You would probably leave that dinner party wondering the sanity of the individual. Secondly, that this person is extremely self-centered. Because they want me to remember them every time I eat of this meal. Like, every time I drink a Dr. Pepper, like, you want me to remember you? Strange. So why do we not have this view about Jesus requesting this? Because 100% of what he says and what he does and who he is is true. From the sinner that confesses their sin to him and he established in his blood a new covenant relationship with them. It's through his sacrifice that you can be made right. There is no other. So it's true that he alone is to be worshipped, is to be praised, is to be remembered. It is true there is no other to be worshipped. The last verse, verse 26, is the last thing that happens in this upper room. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang a hymn together. Now, this is a common practice to celebrate the Passover. This is something that was usually involved in that process. But now the song which they're singing should have new meaning and new purpose. Because really of the new perspective which Christ has brought to all things. Now, we don't know what they sang. It, it wasn't Amazing Grace, right? That was written much later. But whatever their understanding was of the lyrics they were singing, they should have been new. They should have been seen in a different light because of what Christ had just told them, had demonstrated to them, and had promised to them, and that he is the light of the world. I'm going to ask our worship team to come at this time. Usually, we, we have a time where I give you a couple of questions to kind of reflect on, to meditate on, to, to spend some time in prayer. But this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to sing a song as our time of reflection. And what I want you to do is to process, process that question of, is it I? Do, do I really surrender all? Because this is the song we're singing, I surrender all. This is a very familiar song to you. The first verse says this. All to Jesus, I surrender. 
All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence, daily live. I want us to spend some time this morning either voicing it with with our mouth, but definitely with our heart. Do I surrender to Jesus? Do I surrender myself to him? Who else should I surrender myself to? Who else is there? What else is there that I should surrender myself to? Have I given myself to him? Have I confessed that he is Lord? Have, has he taken over my life? Do I live daily in his presence or is it just this hour and a half on Sunday morning? Let's spend some time and maybe you need to, to voice those words vocally, but all of us need to, need to sing this in our heart. If you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, today is your day of salvation. You have, you have heard the word preached. You have, you have seen from God's word. You have heard through song. You have heard prayers prayed for you. Turn to him. Turn to him in repentance. Trust in him today today.